Hello, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listing Behind the Curtain. Now, ordinarily, I would say this is my opportunity to step away from the politics that I cover on television and do the more artistic thing that I get to do here on the WGN Radio podcast. But today, actually, the worlds collide uh, because what we're going to do is be talking to the author of a book called Dinner with the President. And uh, it's uh, it's politics, but it's politics at your dinner table. Say hi to Alex Prudhomme. He is the author of this book um, and the co-author of a book called My Life in France. Alex, good to see you. Uh, you were on our morning show uh, on TV. I was so flipped out when I heard about this. I contacted you and I said, we got to talk to, and I get to talk to you for a longer amount of time. So thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Great to be here, Paul. So uh, let's start with your name. Uh, I know there's a f- familiar relationship to the famous Julia and Paul Child. So I'll have you tell me about that. And I know everybody, like if they read your bio, they know about that. But I looked at your name of Prudhomme and I went, oh, wait a minute. I know Paul Prudhomme, so there's got to be a tie to that, although he didn't put an accent in there. Give us the family history. Who are your ties to those famous chefs? Well, the name Prudhomme uh, is an old French name, uh, and the Prudhommes were were Huguenots, so we were all kicked out of France after the Revolution in 1790. So their Prudhommes spread all over the world, uh, hardly any left in France. And um, I met Chef Paul uh, once when he was here in New York. He had a restaurant and I went by and I said, hey, chef, uh, we've got to be related with our names. He's like, well, you spell yours with an apostrophe. That means you're a prudent man. You're, you're a smart guy. And I said, well, <laughs> and he said, you spell it the way I do with no apostrophe in the middle. That means stubborn mule. And I said, well, you're pretty smart. I'm pretty stubborn. Yeah, we got to be related way back. You know, uh, my group went from Belgium actually to China, then up to Canada and then down here. His group went uh, to Canada and then down to Louisiana uh, with the Cajuns. And so, you know, he was a famous Cajun chef. Um, and, you know, rest in peace. I miss him, guy. He was a great and His sport. wife, Kay, both passed. It's interesting because he was a very big guy and his wife, Kay, was a very slender person. And yeah. she died first. So I got, you know, a little unusual. I have to tell you, I have one Paul Prudhomme, I have many, but one Paul Prudhomme story I'll just share with you. The first time I went to his restaurant and I asked whether I could meet him and say hello to him. And so they went back and talked to him. He brought me back to the kitchen where he was training 11 Russian chefs. Wow. (laughs) Kept me there for the evening, letting me taste everything, caviar. He was teaching them all sorts of things and Mm. invited me to be a part of this. And I had had dinner. He could have said, thanks for eating and pay your check and get out of here. That's just not who he was. No, no. You had some real uh, Cajun hospitality there. That's awesome. Very, very true. So the Julia Child part of your family, that tie, you do know what it is. Yeah. Now that is a different, that's my mother's side of the family. So my mother was a child. Her father, Charlie Child, was the twin brother of Julia's husband, Paul. So Charlie and Paul were twins. So I'm related to Julia through Paul, through marriage. Um, And Paul and Julia never had kids of their own. Um, And so growing up, they treated my sisters and my cousins and me like uh, surrogate grandchildren, essentially. We'd see them all the time. Uh, as you might imagine, Thanksgiving was kind of a competitive sport, uh, but lots of fun. And I was very lucky because I grew up in this household of, of people who cooked well and appreciated food, not just Julia, but of course she was the patron saint. Um, and I was lucky enough, uh, uh, to help her write her memoir called My Life in France, uh, which ultimately became a bestseller and led to half of the film, Julie and Julia. Uh, and so that was a really fun experience to go with her 
through the favorite years of her life, 1948 to 1954, when she and Paul lived in France, in Paris and then Marseille. Uh, he was a diplomat. He brought her over there. Uh, he had been there in the 20s and 30s. He could speak French fluently. He was a food and wine guy. Julia was from Pasadena. She'd never been outside of the States except to Mexico. She uh, didn't speak French. She was intimidated. But on her very first meal, November 3rd, 1948, the day they landed in Le Havre and they were driving to Paris, they go to Rouen uh, and they eat at La Couronne, which is the oldest restaurant in France, still there. And Paul, in his beautiful French, ordered a sole meunier and a sputtering butter sauce and you know, wine for lunch, which Julia had never even conceived of. Uh, and it just blew her mind. And and it was, she didn't realize it in that moment, but that was the, that was the beginning of the rest of her life. And it was, a, it was a kind of an, an epiphany and a wonderful, she, she gave me a wonderful description. So we wrote it up in the book and, and, and Nora Ephron uh, adapted it for the, for the movie. So it was, it was, it was really fun. I forgot to have with me. I actually have a couple of books signed by Julia and one signed by Julia and Paul. Um, and yeah, I like to do those. that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I meant to show those to you. I guess one last question on that. We're going to get into this book itself. But when you were helping her, whatever, or, or growing up, did you know that she's like Julia child or was she Aunt Julia? I mean, uh, both. I mean, you know, when you're a little kid, we, we used to have a little black and white TV in our kitchen and we would watch Julia. And then uh, very often she'd be in New York and then she would stroll into the kitchen. And when you're a little kid, you think, oh, yeah, she came out of the TV. You know, <laughs> later you kind of figure out that she was a TV star. Um, but she was such a genuine, warm person. The Julia you saw on TV was the real Julia. Uh, and so in my experience, she was never pretentious or kind of know it all or anything. She was she was very curious and very, you know, funny, very inquisitive. You know, when she would come to the city, we would go out for lunch or dinner and they would always put us at the biggest table in the middle of the dining room and people would come up and start talking to her. And then she'd say, "Okay, I've got to eat. Thanks. I'll talk to you later. And then after the meal, they would take us back in the kitchen, a little bit like you with Chef Paul. And we would talk to everybody in the kitchen and starting with the chef and working down to the dishwasher. And she usually knew the chef's story, but the dishwasher, she didn't. And that was where she would really focus her energy. And wow. I think as a kid, it was a great example to me because she would ask all of them questions. And it was a genuine interest she had in other people. And I think that that must have lodged in the back of my brain as, wow, you know, you can make a living doing this. And that's how I became a magazine journalist. One of the ways I became a magazine journalist and then ultimately wrote books. What I really respect is the fact that she, there's so many people who wouldn't give the time of the day to the cook, not, not, sorry, not to the cook, but to the, you know, the dishwasher and those kind of people, right? Sure. They'd have to be with the top, the owner of the restaurant. It's so heartwarming to hear you basically say that she appreciated, you know, the other end of that spectrum because everybody plays a role in all of this. Yeah. One last question about her. Did you watch the multi-part series on Hulu on her life? And if you did, was it accurate? Um, well, there's two things. There was a documentary that came out last year called. No, Julia. this was the one starring David Hyde Pierce and. Yeah, so that documentary I'm in, and then the HBO Max series I'm an advisor. I'm I'm a consulting producer on that, so I have seen it. Yes. Okay. Um, it is based in truth, but it is fictionalized. So it, it's what they call faction, uh, fiction and 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 you know real life combined. Um, one of their sources was my book, which was the sequel to my life in France, which was called The French Chef in America. And that tells the story of when Paul and Julia come back to the States. Uh, she 
publishes her first cookbook, and then she gets on television and becomes ultimately our first true celebrity television chef. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that HBO Max series um, covers that ground in the early days of television in the 1960s. And um, they're working on a series, a second series, now, season two of the series. I was so, hoping so. That's great. Yeah, That's so, I'm yeah. sure you'll be involved. Let's talk about the book. So sure. it starts with George Washington and other founding fathers. It works its way through Trump. It's sort of easy because you start with complex meals and you end up with Burger King. Um, <laughs> but but having said that. I actually that, end up with ice cream with Joe Biden. <laughs> oh, that is true. That's right. We've got Biden and ice cream. That's in my notes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but let me just take a step back. How do you know, I mean, I know the answer because I read the book, but, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, you've got stories of what the the the, the, the table, it's octagon, it's circle, all of this and what they were. How do you know what Thomas Jefferson was having cooked for his guests? I did a lot of research on this one. I'll tell you, this was a really fun book to work on. Um as I mentioned, I'm, I grew up in this foodie family, but we like to sit around the table and talk about politics and history or argue about it. Usually, uh, I was a history major. So this was the background. Um, I got interested in the subject because Julia did some television documentaries about state dinners, and I thought that was fascinating. And uh, then in 2016, I was invited to give a talk at the White House, and I actually got to see the back rooms of the White House with a friend of mine who worked in the Obama administration. And I saw the kitchen at work and it just all kind of came together for me at that point. And I was busy with other things. Finally, I began to work on it in 2018 and I was trying to get the book done in like two and a half years or so. Uh, and I was going great guns. COVID. COVID hit. Yep. Thank you very little. Uh, COVID hit and everything came to a screeching halt and all the museums closed, the Library of Congress, the Smithsonian, all my sources dried up. Uh, which, as you know, as a journalist, is kind of like worst case scenario. But luckily, by that point, I had uh, enough sources that they started feeding me stuff either electronically or physically through the mail. And that kind of saved the finishing of the book. Um, and, you know, it ended up taking almost four years to do. The book was delayed by a year because of some supply chain stuff. And so it was just, you know, but actually the extra time was good because it First of all, it gave me time to tweak a few things. And second of all, uh, it allowed the political tenor of the country to calm down a little bit. And I think had this book come out a year earlier, it would have been more difficult to talk about the politics of food and the food of politics than it is now. Not that it's easy now, but it's right. it's easier. And um, so, uh, you know, to answer your question, I I talked to a ton of people. I did a ton of reading. I went to visit a whole bunch of the presidential homes or or sites like Valley Forge where uh, I set scenes. And as a journalist, I, I always enjoyed going out and reporting. And I guess so I feel like it brings history alive in a way that just reading about it doesn't. And I tend to write in a fairly cinematic way, kind of visual. I'm a visual person. So for me, the setting a scene is important. And so each chapter is slightly different from the others. I try to set a little scene. I try to make the personalities come alive and, of course, the food and uh, talk about why food has been so crucial and what it tells us about the evolution of the presidency, but also of the country. 
And so you divide the book into three sections, the 18th and 19th century, then the 20th century and the 21st century. There's themes in this book. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it's sort, sort of fascinating to, you know, indigenous people, uh, slaves cooking. So we go through all of that. And obviously, of course, when Thomas Jefferson is making dinner for somebody, you don't have the White House kitchen that you have today, you know, with all these people involved. But I just want to walk through for folks who are watching or listening to us. I mean, you literally do walk through everybody. And I just kind of took some notes about some different presidents, things I found interesting. And let me just run them by you to, sure. if you will, wet people's appetites to Absolutely. read so much more in the book. Let's go to George Washington. Um, and you made the note. I always thought of George Washington. Well, I didn't know. I thought everybody back there would, you know, were drinking their jugs of alcohol. You make the point. He actually wasn't a big drinker, but he did like wine. That's right. And not only that, but uh, he, he wasn't a big drinker, but he did uh, brew beer and distill whiskey. Uh, if you go down to Mount Vernon in Virginia, you can see the places where he did that. They're still up and running and functioning as kind of working museums. And it's really cool to see. Um, he was also, you know, he was the father of the country um, and he was a slaveholder. Um, and his chef was a slave named uh, Hercules who was an, an, a really talented guy. I mean, were he alive today, he would probably have his own TV show. I mean, he was a <laughs> meticulous chef, uh, rigorous in his attention to detail. Everything had to look right and taste right. It'd be presented well. No sloppiness in the kitchen. Woe betide anybody who made a mistake. He'd let them have it. Um, and the, the, the Washingtons really relied on him. And, and in a sense, the... Um, the reputation of the Washington presidency and the country rested on Hercules' shoulders, and yet he was a slave. Uh, and so one of the ways, uh, I know you said you did a lot of research, and, and the first question, because I don't want to escape this one, which is how do you know what George Washington was eating? But you point out that Martha Washington actually had a cookbook. Jefferson's granddaughter actually published a cookbook. So that's how we can go back there. They were and right. I imagine they had cookbooks because they were using them for themselves. I don't know that they were thinking about yeah. posterity, but that's how we know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, the Washington, Martha Washington had two cookbooks. One was for savory dishes. One was, was for sweet dishes. Um, and I have some recipes in the back of, of yeah. my book, Dinner with the President, including Martha Washington's cherry compote, which is makes your teeth hurt just to read that <laughs> Her directions where you, it's like a pound of sugar for a pound of cherries. <laughs> so it's a really easy, fun dish. You can make it with kids. Um, but I, um, I include her original recipe, but then I include a modern recipe with less sugar than I used. But it's a, it's a great, easy dish and you can put it with ice cream or yogurt or whatever. And, um, and so I, I came yeah, looking at those old recipes, it sort of, it tells you a story about who they were and what they were doing. Yeah, and I, I a couple of years ago I found an, um, a recipe for um, Mary Todd Lincoln's uh, a cake that she made, kind of a cinnamony cake. And and so when you look at what she did, I mean things have changed today, right? You have to modernize them a little bit, maybe for certain ingredients, maybe amounts. But I know that people who know what they're doing, like you, not me, would know what you have to do to modify to make a certain cake work today. Yeah, right. A little bit less lard and sugar, uh, <laughs> a little bit lighter ingredients. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you try to get the same taste. You know, you want to you want to make it somewhat historically accurate. Yeah. Right. And by the way, um, we mentioned up front, you know, Joe Biden being Mr. Ice Cream. But the truth is, your book tells us, well, you can actually go back to Thomas Jefferson. You'll find a guy That's who right. liked ice cream. That's right. Yeah, and he also had a slave uh, chef named James Hemings, uh, brother of Sally Hemings, and uh, James was brought to Paris by Jefferson. 
when he, when he was the ambassador there and he uh, trained James at some of Paris's leading kitchens. Um, and here's another guy who should have a movie made out of him. Uh, he, uh, he became really an adept cook. He could speak French more fluently than Jefferson. He, he was making money there because slavery wasn't legal. Uh, he was this remarkable guy. And um, between the two of them, they brought this whole notion of how to use food as a political tool, uh, which the French court always did, back to America and really used it intelligently. And the two of them, I think, created what was the foundation of our modern American cuisine. Um, it was something that they called Virginia cuisine. It was really mm-hmm. Jefferson and Hemings cuisine. And that was a fusion of American ingredients like corn and venison and cod uh, with French technique, uh, largely British recipes, uh, herbs and spices from the African slaves, plus the cook's own intuitive uh, spark. Uh, and this was known as Virginia cuisine. And it was it was really a remarkable thing. It was like the beginning of a distinctive cooking Um and it it has only expanded since then because we've become a more polyglot nation. And so we embrace Asian and Latin uh, flavors much more now. And um, but, you know, Jefferson and Hemings were a remarkable combo. And and they brought vanilla ice cream back uh, from Paris to they America. And, and Jefferson would re- reserve it for very special occasions. Um, and um, when he, he when when James Hemings uh, made this special dessert, which was cold vanilla ice cream in a warm puff pastry. Uh, and Jefferson rolled this out. It just, again, it blew people's minds. They'd never seen anything like this before and they never tasted it. And even the most curmudgeonly old, you know, uh, Southern congressman who wanted nothing to do with anything <laughs> lit up at this dessert. So I, I wonder what Jefferson food would- can actually be used in a political way. I'd love yeah. to take Jefferson to a Baskin Robbins. Look, Tom, 31 flavors. He would, <laughs> yeah, he'd go exactly. nuts. Well, I'm going to fast forward because I wish I had hours with you, but we don't. So I want to highlight some presidents that sort of everybody kind of is familiar with. I'm going to move it up to Lincoln, um, sure. where you talk about Lincoln as being sort of passive and disinterested in food. For him, it was sort of just fuel, right, to, to do what he needed to do. So he wasn't really the connoisseur? Well, Early on in his life, he grew up on the frontier of Kentucky and Illinois, and so he loved corn cakes, he loved raw honey in the comb, things like that. But as he matured and he became a lawyer, uh, he was actually a, quite a hearty eater. He wasn't a picky eater. He would eat pretty much anything, but he became a big, strong guy as a young man. Um, his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, grew up in a very refined household. She liked foie gras and caviar and, you know, delicious fricassees and so on. And so they were kind of an odd couple. Um, but she, when they married, she rolled up her sleeves and learned how to cook. And we know this because we have her actual cookbook and we've seen her stove. And they actually have the trash heap where they would throw all the chicken bones. And <laughs> So we know what they were eating, uh, which is really interesting. And... um then comes the Civil War, and he uh, kind of his it's like his central nervous system is wired into the war. So when things are going badly, he almost stops eating. He loses something like 30 pounds. Uh, he survives on a cup of coffee and an apple, you know, maybe a corn cake once in a while. He sometimes forgets to eat and lies down and has a nap. And people were afraid he was going to die because he was so malnourished. And then Mary Todd would try to feed him beautiful meals to get him interested, and he'd have a bite or two. 
but he was so consumed by the war that um, it was hard for him to eat. And then the ultimately, time- um, he had, well, I just wanted to quickly tell you, yeah, sure. he had this, his second inauguration, which was right towards the end of the Civil War, um, was a celebration of his victory, but also of the end of the war. And uh, it devolved into a food fight because people sensed that there was a change in the air. And there was this kind of manic energy. And they held this party in the old post office building, which is a beautiful building. And people had a little bit too much to drink. And they were dancing, whirling around. The doors opened to the dining room. And there's this fabulous 250-foot-long table just resplendent with food, uh, you know, a whole table just for desserts. And the crowd saw this and just went nuts and attacked the food. And they were ripping down the curtains and smushing food into the ground and breaking glasses and throwing things. And um, and the Lincoln sort of sat there feeling confused. You know, what was going on here? And his Secret Service guy, uh, uh, in retrospect, after Lincoln's assassination, which wasn't very long after that night, uh, looked back and he thought, you know, the crowd sensed that this was an end of an era and the end of Lincoln. And 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 they used food as sort of an expression of their angst. Uh, so it's just sort of a fascinating moment. Was it also my memory that you said on assassination night, the last thing he ate was turtle soup? That's we don't know that that's a lot of people think so. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. mock turtle soup. <laughs> OK, just, just actually, if you go to the Smithsonian, they have the coffee cup. The very last thing he consumed was a cup of coffee, which he he drank coffee all the time. Uh, and they have the actual cup, drank the coffee, went off to the theater and was shot by by Booth. Um, and they have the actual cup. It's amazing. Wow. Very cool. Uh, let me take it up to what I think you have. Every president is in the book. So I'm just. No, I only I have 26 of the 46. The I didn't want to do all of them because it would have been an encyclopedia. Yeah. So I, I uh, and who cares with Chester presidents? Yeah, right. Uh, let me take it up to I think FDR might have been the first snobby president with his Terrapin soup, which he thought was his lucky soup. And Eleanor just thought it was pretentious. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. So his cousin, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, was what they call a gourmand, which is somebody who eats too much. And Teddy arguably ate himself to death. Uh, uh, and, uh, FDR, on the other hand, was a real gourmet, which is what we now call a foodie, somebody who really appreciates fine food and good cooking, uh, likes exotic ingredients. He liked to eat things like special crayfish or elk tongue or bison steaks. Um, and yet his wife, Eleanor, um, saw food as fuel. Uh, her son said said she saw the kitchen as a laboratory. And and exactly. And she under she didn't really want to be first lady, but but she understood, especially during the war, the value of her bully pulpit, that she could use the kitchen as a to set an example for the nation um, about thrifty eating, also about female empowerment. Uh, they, she worked with the Cornell uh, University um, Home Economics Department to sort of develop this notion of the housewife of the future. Uh, someone who was scientifically trained, who understood calories. Um, and so she kind of took food in a very different direction, which was, you know, the combination of those two personalities was guaranteed to create marital tension, which was only exacerbated when Eleanor discovered that FDR was having an affair with her social secretary <laughs> and and then hired this woman named Henrietta Nesbitt, who as the housekeeper, uh, Mrs. Nesbitt uh, didn't do the cooking <laughs> But she oversaw the kitchen and she 
uh, came up with the menus and got the ingredients. Uh, unfortunately, she had almost no sense about food at all. Uh, she thoroughly embraced the uh, economical eating. She would get the cheapest cuts of meat. You know, all vegetables should be canned. Salads should be made out of jello or crushed up candy canes. Um, you know, leftovers were de rigueur. She would serve FDR, this great gourmet, um, sweetbread six nights in a row. And then when he got sick of that, she would switch it to liver and beans for the next six <laughs> nights in a row. And FDR was furious about this. And here's the president, the most powerful man in the world. Why was he not able to direct his own diet? Well, I think it goes back to this affair uh, with Lucy Mercer, who was uh, uh, Eleanor's social secretary, <laughs> which was a real betrayal to her. And and some historians have said that um, Mrs. Nesbitt was a tool of domestic revenge against FDR. Interesting. <laughs> so, I love it. Yeah. Let, let's skip over the meat and potatoes, Harry Truman. Um, and because we returned to class with JFK. And of course, that's no surprise to anybody, the style. And that's got to be credit to Jackie, right? And the notion of this fine dining it was central to who she was. Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about the Kennedy White House food, you really have to talk about Jackie. Uh, Jackie was a Francophile who uh, modeled her entertaining at the White House on King Louis XIV, the Sun King uh, in France, uh, who was a great gourmet and used food as a diplomatic tool. It used him to broker agreements and marriages um, to keep his friends close and his enemies closer. Uh, and so she emulated this. And with the backing of her wealthy father-in-law, Joe Kennedy, she was able to redecorate the White House and to um, have these fabulous meals and especially some state dinners uh, that I talk about in the book. Um, and uh, she was very, very effective. I mean, it, it was it was remarkable. I mean, she got things done. Um, and and John F. Kennedy um, acknowledged the power, the soft power that, that Jackie wielded uh with her entertainments and so um between the two of them um the politics of food and the food of politics really came to a head yeah you almost you credit jefferson there by saying this is the most we've seen the kind of spices and things since jefferson's day exactly. uh, returns to her so then we take a turn back into regular food lbj is de- doing his barbecue and his chili and nixon liked his steaks um reagan gets a little interesting however right with his sort of his hollywood image and all, all that kind of thing. Uh, you talk about being a little bit of a, a controversial aspect when it comes to food with him. Well, you know, he was an interesting guy because he was a Midwesterner who kind of reinvented himself as a Californian. Yeah. Uh, he was a Democrat who reinvented himself as a Republican. And then he had Nancy, who had great social aspirations and um, was a very determined person. And so the, the combination is fascinating. Um, you know, they're known for having their TV dinners uh, in front of the television uh, they're known for a lot of uh, a kind of California Mexican cuisine. Uh, he liked steak and 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 onion rings and ice cream, but Nancy would only let him have that once in a very long while. And so when she left town, he immediately started ordering steaks, uh, which was a common theme amongst the presidents and and husbands all across America. Um, and uh, but he's also he's probably best known for his jelly beans. Yeah. Um, and the jelly beans are interesting because they're these seemingly, seemingly simple candies, and yet they tell uh, several interesting stories. The first is he used jelly beans to wean himself off of tobacco. He was a pipe smoker. Uh, and he used jelly beans to judge people's character. If somebody 
picked out just one color of jelly bean and ate that. That told him something about that person <laughs> versus somebody who just grabbed a handful and ate whatever. Um, and then, uh, you know, he used it um, intentionally or not, but effectively to build a bridge to his voters, to his voting block. It turns out when we see people eating the foods that we like, it's a very powerful motivator for us. It goes back into our prehistoric brain and it says to us, he likes to eat what I like to eat. Therefore, he's of the same tribe as me. It's, he's safe. I, I, I like him. I'll vote for him. And he didn't even have to say those words, but that was part of the message of, of the jelly beans, much like Donald Trump and his burgers or even Barack Obama and his, you know, kale and arugula. Or, or the flip side to this, and we just got about five minutes left, so I want to want to be sure yeah. I tap into some things. The flip side of this, George H.W. Bush, who famously didn't like broccoli, and that turned the broccoli industry on its head for a while, although thank goodness his son did like broccoli, as you report. <laughs> yeah, and the broccoli farmers brought 10 tons of broccoli yeah. in protest to the White House. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. You also saw, however, George W. Bush wasn't a super salad fan. No, didn't like anything green, didn't (laughs) like any wet fish. Uh, He liked liked the wet Yes, He liked ballpark hot dogs, which had to be steamed, not grilled. He made a big deal about that. Uh, And he had very basic kind of country club tastes that a lot of people can relate to. Without question, the foodie label returns in the Obama years. Absolutely. And not only because of Michelle's garden, uh, but also because uh, Barack really uh, paid attention to what was going on in the food world. And I, li- I live in New York City, and I remember they would come here on date night, and they would go to the hottest restaurants, and he knew exactly what to order. Um, and he would shut down town. <laughs> but it was power to him. You know, he was really enjoying it. And um, so I, my impression from talking to uh, people like Sam Cass, their personal chef, was that she was really the one that was most focused on health. And he was the one that was most focused on gastronomy and the best food. And he actually did a famous uh, television show with a- Anthony Bourdain in Hanoi, Vietnam, where they ate spicy buncha noodles. And, you know, he grew up in partly in Indonesia, so he could just eat this stuff all day. And and it was a remarkable bit, a bit of social outreach that, you know, reached millions of people. But what I also love was that there was a longtime chef there named Comerford, and there was talk about them firing him, whatever, and, you know, bringing in people like Art Smith. I mean, Chicago, I'm saying these names because Chicagoans know Art Smith, Rick Bayless, sure. uh, who I know well. I mean, so these are famous yeah, names. Yeah, Rick there. Bayless. I tell you, Rick Bayless is in the book. He's a great guy. Yeah, and absolutely. Bit. But what yeah. I loved about it, I'm assuming maybe it's Michelle's call, but in the end, they kept the old chef. They didn't shake things up that much. Well, it turns out that Chef Comerford is actually a woman, uh, Chris Comerford. Uh, she's from the Philippines. Um, and she and Michelle bonded over being moms and also being, you know, into good food. And they were under a lot of pressure because they were considered the sort of the foodie first foot family. Um, and they, they did interview all these fancy name chefs, but they finally decided what's wrong. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Let's yeah. keep Chris Comerford. She was originally hired by George W. Bush. Uh, she made it through the Obamas and the Trumps, and she's still there now. She's the second longest serving executive chef at the White House. And, and if there was anybody deserving of going to a state dinner, including the president of South Korea, so it's you. And you did your best to get invited <laughs> to a state dinner. I did. Thank you for mentioning that. Yes, yeah, it just, I you, tried. Well, I'm sorry, because at the end of the story isn't a happy one. Yeah. Well, the story's not over yet. I'm still okay. trying. We'll see. <laughs> um, no, you know, they just had the state dinner for South Korea with President Yoon. Uh, it sounded like a fabulous meal. Um, and uh, the Biden previously had uh, Macron of France. Um, 
you know, there's always a political or economic backstory to these things. And the, the, the state dinner is kind of the celebration at the end of diplomatic relationships. Um, and so, you know, they've, the, the Bidens are picking up the pace. The, the, they're going to have a few more, I think. And, um, and Cumberford is there and she's able to do it. And in the case of the South Korean dinner, they had a, a guest chef, a Korean American guy, um, uh, named Edward Lee, um, who comes from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, oh, and, uh, made a fabulous kind of fusion dinner. And this is what happens in a state dinner. They, they try to make an acknowledgement to the guest country, but they also want to use the best of American ingredients in cooking and, and to really showcase the White House kitchen. Well, which means you're going to get there eventually. I think you will. And please let me know when you do. I shall. Uh, be, I, I was. I went to one White House reception. They are now short three forks, um, <laughs> which are part of my collection, not to mention the napkins and everything else I was shoving. If it wasn't <laughs> locked down, it was coming home. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but probably why I haven't been invited back either. Uh, but anyway, this is just such a fascinating book, Alex. I, I just love it. Dinner with the President excited me when I heard you on the morning show. We got to come. Even now, I, I still need another half hour with you. I mean, there's just so much to talk about. The book is the details. As you say, it plays out like a movie. There's so much to this. I congratulate you on this. The full title of the book is Dinner with the President, Food Politics, and a History of Breaking Bread at the White House. Um, please let me know when you go to the White House. In fact, I'll be your guest. Leave the family. You know, I'm going with you to the White House. I'll steal the plates. Okay. Very good. Okay. Well, thanks, Paul. I really enjoyed this. Uh, and as Julia would say, bon appetit. Bon appetit, my friend. Merci. Thank you so much. You got it. Take care. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.